Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I covered how the coronavirus is bringing out the heroism of everyday Americans, just sort of looking at things like grocery store employees, warehouse employees, and on and on, just how these people prove that we are a truly exceptional country day in and day out. The second column I wrote this week talked about the importance of trust in this new coronavirus era and how the world truly runs on trust as a valuable thing. And then finally, in the newsletter this week, you saw and read about how hurricanes and storm modeling work together and what they can tell us about virus modeling in the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you're calling it. Just talk through both the Atlantic hurricane season, because I needed a break talking about the coronavirus, and talked about storm modeling. And then, of course, because everything is related to it, we looped back in and talked about how it does relate to the coronavirus. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox. Just go to thebeltwayoutsiders.com, and that's just the easiest way to get all my columns and analysis to you, and so make sure to sign up for that. Finally, if you like what you hear here or you enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I look forward to hearing back from you guys in those reviews. All right, so this week, we're going to jump into the show. This week, as it's been now for what it feels like forever, because the coronavirus feels like it's been dragging on for forever, it's all about the coronavirus and how it's interacting with every part of our lives. So we'll talk about updates, and then in the first section of the show, and then on the second part of it, we're going to talk through the economy and talk through the $2.2 trillion spending bill that was passed by Congress to provide relief to everyone suffering from this virus. So that's sort of how we're going to work through the day's show. And with that, we will jump right in. So the totals at the end of the day on Sunday, and I'm recording this late Sunday night, this is coming from the COVID tracking project. And right now they have U.S. totals set at 831,351 tests. So a little, so we're closing in on close to a million tests overall run in the country, which is a good thing. We obviously need to test more. It looks like right now we have stalled out somewhere between 100 and just shy of 110,000 tests a day. And that is where we're getting an absolute result of either a positive or a negative every single day. That doesn't include pending tests. That could rope in more. According to their numbers, though, it looks like we have stalled out at around 100 to 107,000 specifically. And then every day, there's between 60 to 65,000 pending tests. So we need, there's a bit of a backlog in the number of tests that are sitting there in the pending category. And that would be really nice to see that work down closer to zero with the overall results skyrocketing day in and day out. And there's a chance, because we have reports that Abbott Labs has developed a five-minute test, that if you could get people in and out in five minutes and have their results instantly on right there on the spot, that would go a long way towards reducing these backlogs and getting people their results immediately. So of that 831,000 tests, almost 140,000 are 
positive. Specifically, it's 139,061. That was at the end of day reporting on Sunday. They closed their reporting every day at 4 o'clock Eastern. So that's what they had then. So these numbers, I'm, I just went by their end of day numbers on that. These are obviously going to be higher if you're listening to this anytime after that or next day or any different part of during the week. And then finally, the most important numbers out of all this are hospitalization and people who have died. The hospitalization numbers are closing in on 20,000. Right now we're sitting at 19,730. That number is obviously higher because not all states are reporting their hospitalization numbers. So we are well north of 20,000 right now. The last time I checked, they said somewhere between 20 to 25 states were regularly reporting their hospitalization numbers. And so that's about what we are. That doesn't include everybody. And then on the deaths, we almost have 2,500 people who have died from this. Right now we're sitting at 2,428, 2,428. And if you look at those and you apply those to the positive tests, looking at the population of people who get this, so right now, if you nationally, these are the national numbers, and I do have to emphasize that because you'll see in a moment. Right now, the hospitalization rate nationally is 14.1%. And then I'm using the total hospitalization numbers we have against the total positive numbers that we have. So that is an obviously wrong number. The hospitalization rate is higher than 14.1%. I don't know how much higher, but that is the best guess estimate I have right now based on solely the numbers that we can get from states that report this. So if your state doesn't report your hospitalization numbers, we know those are out there. We just don't know what they are to apply them to that. So the hospitalization rate is probably closer to 20 to 25% and maybe even higher. And the mortality rate against that same thing is right now is at 1.75%. So it's very close to 2%. And it's worse in some places. It's better than others. When people were talking about the overall seasonal flu, you're talking about something that sits around at 0.1%. So we are nearing at just a solid 2% overall. And that's at end of day Sunday when we're getting all of these numbers. Now the way the reason that I put a big caveat on these national numbers even with all of that is because New York and New York City is the overlying skew point here. They have the most tests, the most deaths, just everything of any state or city in the United States. They are driving up numbers left and right. So if you look at New York, they have close to 60,000 of the overall. I mean, we have 100, almost 140,000 tests overall, and New York City is just, New York State and New York City are just shy of 60,000 positive tests by themselves. And of those, 965 of the deaths are New York. And as I was getting ready to go on here, I saw some local reports out of New York saying that they were already north of a thousand people who have died. That'll probably be confirmed sometime tomorrow whenever Andrew Cuomo or Bill de Blasio gives their Monday update. So New York is seriously skewing the numbers nationally. They are by themselves 42.7% of all positive cases in the United States by themselves, and then they're also 40% of all deaths that we have had. 
And once you add in the states of New Jersey and Connecticut, which have all been sort of cloistered there in a high number of states because of New York, you really get an outsized portion of the entire national numbers are coming from these three specific areas. That doesn't mean they're not problem spots in the rest of the United States, but it does mean that New York is still an outsized percentage of everything that we were seeing in our numbers nationally. That's why when you see these different charts that compare the United States to the rest of the world, it's not that helpful or accurate. The better comparisons, honestly, are the ones that compare U.S. metro areas with other cities across the world. So if you're looking at a chart that compares different cities in the United States against each other, that's very helpful. Right now, New York is the equivalent of our Wuhan or Lombardy, Italy. That is how bad it is there. It is the worst of the worst, just pure numbers-wise, and it's skewing things. And that is likely to continue. As I'll get here to in a second, they're expecting the actual peak nationally of all these numbers to hit sometime around Easter. Some of the models are pointing at April 13th, and I'll get to more on that in a second, but that means that cities like New York have more time to pile up numbers here and continue to skew this. This next week, you're going to see things shift to other states. I'm really concerned this week looking at the Rust Belt states, places like Detroit, Michigan, uh, places like Ohio, and some of these others where the the wave that we're seeing sort of move through these states, starting with New York and moving to the west, is really beginning to show up in some of these other metropolitan areas. So if you look at the Rust Belt states and then you look to the south, specifically looking in places like Atlanta, New Orleans, and Miami. So you got Georgia, you got Louisiana, you got Florida. Some people have also thrown Tennessee in there with Nashville. Nashville's been better than most. We have a high number of cases statewide between Nashville and Memphis. But overall, the hospitalization rates have remained low so far, which has kept our death rate also very low. As of end today, Sunday, we only had seven deaths overall, which is a very good result to have. That could change here in the coming weeks just because Tennessee has reported that several nursing homes have gotten involved with this, and that is always a bad outcome no matter where you are. So I, it, it's one of those things where if if nursing homes come into play, the states probably, any state, Tennessee included, they're going to have to come up with a plan where they probably immediately evacuate the nursing home, get these people out of there, and then deep clean the entire thing to kill the virus out of these facilities. Because if it gets loose in any of these facilities, it's just, you get awful, awful results. There is some evidence in places like Italy and France that they did not report deaths out of some of their nursing homes and other facilities. They were only reporting deaths out of hospitals. And so if that changes here in the next week or two, you may see a large spike in the number of deaths out of those countries as they start to take a full scope of what's happened across their country. So those are the overall numbers looking at the United States and thinking about these different states. Like I said, this next week, you really have to look at how this thing marches west and affects everything west of New York, the Rust Belt states, the southern states, and everything in between. I haven't seen any large outbreaks between California and, say, St. Louis. So in between there, that would probably be the third wave of this as it spreads. There are cases in those states. They're just not anywhere near to the extent of what we're seeing 
out east. So those are the national numbers. Today, Trump gave his, his daily press conference and he extended all CDC guidelines on social distancing and everything else to the end of April. That is going to have a lot of economic issues moving forward because we're basically asking for everyone to take another month off. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the second part of the show. But it also has big impacts on how we are trying to flatten the curve moving forward. So as I was saying earlier, the modeling right now that the White House is relying on and that a lot of these professionals in the White House, like Dr. Fauci and others, are relying on suggests right now that the peak of the curve, so when you're talking about flattening the curve, this would be the peak of everything that we're seeing, it could hit sometime around April 13th. Now, you got to remember this is a national thing, and each one of the states is handling it different. So some states will hit this, hit the peak of this curve before April 13th, and some will hit it after April 13th. This is just basically an average of all of them when you're looking at a national scale. But that means that we have a lot more just cases and potential hospitalizations and deaths to work our way through till we get to that peak. Right now, we are still on the upswing of all the models right now. It looks like we are out of the worst of the possible possibilities when people were talking about what the range of possibilities were at the beginning of March. The worst models then said it was possible for one to two million people to die. I never really thought those worst case scenarios would come to pass because we did take actions. Those models were based on the idea that the U.S. takes no action at all and we just tried to get our way to herd immunity. And it's a good thing that we did take that move. One country tried to do that, and that's the Netherlands, and they, the last time I checked, had a fatality rate of 7%, which is astronomical when you're thinking about it, and they're now scrambling trying to flatten the curve themselves. So our actions have saved lives because it has stopped and slowed down the spread of this virus overall. So that is the good thing. The bad part after that is that the next worst case scenario is that we could still see 100 to 200,000 people die from this virus according to those models. That is a lot. We're still taking precautions and I think if I think Trump took the right decision here to continue all the CDC guidelines through the end of the month if everyone continues to follow those instructions, we will easily beat that 100 to 200,000 uh, potential for people dying. And that means the low end of that is between 50 to 80,000, which is still a lot. And we may be able to land underneath that, depending on what happens over the next two weeks. I, I mean, I'm praying that we go below that. It would be very nice. Right now, we're at 2,500 overall, so we're nowhere near that. But the next two to three, the next two weeks in particular, are where you're going to see that peak go up because. It typically takes, when you're looking at some of these studies, it typically takes a person who gets the virus three weeks to hit, get to the worst of it. So if they, what you're looking at now, people who are dying from it, typically they are, have had it for a longer period of time. Now, some people get it and they, they, they get to the worst point of it a lot faster. But typically, if you average it out, you're looking at about a, to a two to three week period of time. So that means the people who you're looking at your possible your, the possibilities for dying from this would have gotten it two or three weeks ago when a lot of our procedures were just getting underway. That's when we were really just starting to cancel things. So it was still had an easy way to spread across the United States. 
That's why you're going to see the peak coming up through here in the next week or two, and it should die off after that because all the things that we've done and all the actions that we've done should start showing up soon. If they don't, that means we're going to hit one of the higher-end numbers in the models. But we should be able to keep this thing in check because we're, we sh we're already out of the truly bad scenarios of 1 to 2 million people dying. Those are still a possibility, but you're talking on a probability scale of that being under 1% the more likely high-end scenario is in the 100 to 200,000 uh, death range, which is what Dr. Fauci was talking about at the press conference today, with the low end being between 50 to 80,000. So that's where we're dealing with in our range of possibilities. And if everyone continues to work hard and not spread this, you could see us beat even those ranges. So that's what we're trying to do there. So these are the models. The um, These are what are shaping all policy decisions. One of the things that I keep writing and hounding about is you need to stop, people need to stop scaring each other with these models. There's a lot of fear-mongering happening on social media with people who think they know how to read these models, using it to say that these things are absolutely going to happen when that's not true because we are taking action and it's important to take these actions into account when you're trying to figure out what's going to happen. It's fine to scare politicians with these models, I think, because you want them to prepare for the worst case scenario while hoping for best case, but you have to take preparations for the eventuality that the worst case can happen. So with all of that, we're really balancing two prongs here. You have on the one hand, we're trying to save lives and keep people healthy and limit the spread of this virus. That's the one part that we're balancing it. That's the thing we're giving more weight right now because that is the more pressing thing at hand. But on the other side, we're also balancing the, econo the, the economy and our economic needs because you don't want people to lose their jobs forever and you don't want people losing their houses. You don't want businesses going under. So that is the balance that we, are, we have right here. This isn't about socialism. This isn't about uh, any of the other playbooks that people have talked about where you're dealing with that you have in the middle of a recession or a depression or really anything else, because we have a very hard balance that we're trying to figure out right now. It's between this economic pain and the physical pain, and the next two weeks are probably going to be the apex of when the pain of both of these things comes all at once. It would be a good thing if Trump can get the IRS to start cutting these checks soon in the next two weeks. That was his goal. His goal was to start having these checks getting cut by April 6th, and I hope he pushes them to do that, because if that happens... It will get people help immediately, and that's what needs to happen right now, and that would alleviate some of this. But the physical and public health pain of this is going to be hurting the most here in the next two months. That's why we're making this balance right now. So we're praying for the best-case scenario here, but you want your leaders preparing for the worst case and adjusting expectations accordingly. You just don't want people running around scaring people. The last thing I wanted to talk about in this one, as since we're before we move into more of the economic stuff, and this is more of what's happening culturally and what different things are happening on that front. You're seeing a lot of people watch their workforces change, how their work, you know, they may use more telecommunications now, whether it's more phone meetings or video conferencing. You're seeing grocery stores adjust to this where they're using more click list and other things along that nature. These are sort of physical cultural changes which are going to affect how we interact with each other 
for a very long time to come because it's impacting how we view each other, how we see each other in the stores, and on and on and on. And all these changes that we were witnessing before are more than likely going to be accelerated by this. There was a big debate before this hit whether or not services like Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and all those others, whether or not they would be able to survive. And right now, they're the main business model. If your business cannot deliver, you're relying on one of these delivery services to get your products out and survive as a restaurant. So that change is going to get accelerated by the coronavirus, depending on how long this this moves on, because people are going to be using these services more, and as they use them more, they are more likely to use them more on the backside of this. So things like that are going to see a substantial change moving forward, and it'll be interesting to see how that all changes after this all shakes out. The second thing, though, and I think this could be more important, and I've been mulling this for about a week or two now, is the cultural or political impact that this could have long-term. And what I'm specifically looking at is in places like, well, not just Europe, but also the United States, and how these countries view China on the backside of this. Right now, everyone's hunkered down trying to survive, and that's fine. But there is going to come a time on the backside of this when people are going to get up, and they're going to look around, and they're going to ask, why did this happen, and who is to blame? Now, if you look in the United States, a lot of people in the in the journalist class and in the pundit class and people who write commentary stuff, you know, people like me who do things like I do, they place a lot of blame right now on Donald Trump. And that's fair because he has missed some things. You have the wasted time that we have because he put in the travel ban at the right time. He could have actually probably put it in earlier and we would have been even better, but no matter what time he put that in, in January, the problem is the FDA and the CDC wasted that time by not getting us up to speed on testing. Because right now we're at the end of March and we are just now hitting 100,000 people a day and we are trying to push to test even more, which means we've just now gotten up to speed testing-wise and this virus has been floating around out there since around December 1st. That's when you start seeing the first reports out of China when this thing made the jump from allegedly a bat to human. But So it's not just about him. You can place some blame on him and some on the CDC and the FDA and how they messed up and the government regulations. Just There's a lot of things we can point to where the federal government and state government and localities messed up on this. There's going to be a big expose, I suspect, on Bill de Blasio at the end of this and what a complete and utter failure he is in New York City. But apart from that, there's also how Europe and the United States will treat China on the backside of this. And what I sincerely expect will happen is a populist backlash against China. And I'll tell you how I'm, I'm sort of viewing this. In, from 2014 to 2015, you had the Syrian migrant crisis where Barack Obama refused to enforce his red line and Assad, the president of Syria, backed by the Russians, was using chemical weapons on his own people. And because the red line was never enforced and the people never got help, you saw this massive outflow of Syrian migrants fleeing their country and fleeing into places like Europe looking for asylum. 
Now, this triggered in 2014 and 2015 a populist backlash across Europe. You also saw some of it in the United States, but this was the populist backlash in the United States was far different than what happened in Europe. A lot of these countries did not like the influx by the hundreds of thousands and sometimes even millions of Syrian migrants in their country all at once. And they didn't like that the EU did not give them any control on that. And you have to take that forward, and that caused a lot of the right-wing movements to grow in Europe across the board in all these countries. You could say it even triggered, helped push Brexit over the line because the UK was not able to control its own borders. Now, at the time, a lot of people on the left in all these countries called this xenophobic and said these people just hated immigrants, and so on and so on. But it, what does, it doesn't really matter what it was. There was still this trigger point where this event in Syria caused a massive populist wave across Europe. That is something that happened. You can debate the causes, but it still happened. A similar type of thing is happening on this with China. What all of these European countries have realized is that all the open borders with the EU have failed them miserably. They've had to shut that entire program down completely, and they've had to turn to their own national governments to protect them in this time, and the EU has been, and specifically in Brussels, they've been useless to stop the spread of the coronavirus across Europe. So if you're looking, and a lot of people who are in Brussels wanting this big European United States-style dream for all these countries, that is up in smoke right now. That is something that's likely not going to happen because you're going to see, I think, this populist backlash, both against the ability to control borders, that's going to come back. You're going to see people a populist backlash of European countries being mad about their reliance on China for everything. Some of the things we're seeing in places like the Netherlands, where they've gotten shipments of masks in from China, around 600,000 masks, and when they've tested them, they found that these masks that China have sent are been worth, have been worthless. There have been several countries, like the Czech Republic, there have been Spain and others who have gotten hundreds of thousands, sometimes almost half a million tests to use, and they've gotten them from China, trying to test and find out where the virus is in their countries, and these tests have been useless. In Spain, some of the reports said that the tests only had a 30% accuracy which means you had a 30% chance of having a good test that identified whether or not you had the virus or not. The other tests were useless. So if you've got that, that means the virus is going to spread even more because you have no good way of finding the virus in your population. So because of that, and, and then that's not, that's just, and that's forgetting the part where this thing originated in China and they covered everything up for two months and refused to let anyone in but the World Health Organization the United States wasn't able to step in, none of these other countries around them were able to step in, and everyone is having to rely on China being an honest and transparent person in, on the international stage. We know that's not happening. So when you put all of that together, I think you're going to get a populist movement against China on the backside of this, where people are going to point at China and say, these people caused us, this specifically this communist government, caused people to die. You have to remember when the Syrian migrant crisis happened, people were just looking at their borders and their countries changing. This coronavirus part is far different. You're looking at dead people. 
People are going to blame China for letting this loose in their countries that have killed their grandparents, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their children, on down the line. This thing has ravaged European, European countries just across the board. In the Netherlands, because they tried to get herd immunity, they had a 7% mortality rate. They're now quickly backtracking. You've seen the stories out of Italy. Spain has had to convert hockey rinks into standalone morgues because they've had so many bodies to deal with. A lot of these other countries are dealing with similar scenarios. Europe is absolutely being ravaged by this thing, not just physically, but also economically. This is what we're trying to avoid in the U.S. by balancing these interests because we don't want this happening to us. We're seeing it some in New York, but hopefully not in the rest of the country. In Europe, they're taking it like we're seeing in New York or Wuhan or Lombardy. They're seeing that more widespread than we ever have. And that is going to have a political effect eventually. That cannot, that will not go unanswered, I don't think. There will be some kind of reaction against China as any kind of a trade partner. And the push to isolate them and reject them in the international community is going to grow after this. How far it grows, I don't know. But I do think that's going to happen. And it's going to impact our politics moving forward, just like the Syrian migrant crisis impacted politics for at least three to five years. That is something that reshaped European politics. It may have caused Brexit, and from there, you could even blame it for causing what happened in the United States, even though that was far less of an actual physical issue here than it was just sort of a theoretical issue that Donald Trump was able to play on. This concept that your country should be allowed to control its borders and control its future is going to grow because people are going to blame China and the incapacity of the EU to deal with China, and there's going to be a reaction here. How big it is, I don't know, but I suspect in 6 to 12 months we're going to learn pretty quickly how much gas is left in the populism across the world because there's going to be something. China's dealing with this with, you know, when they have a doctor who criticizes them, as one was reported on 60 Minutes, the Australian version, that doctor disappeared, and no one knows where that doctor is. And no one will probably ever see that doctor again. That's how China is dealing with this. They are imprisoning people, they're killing people, and they're not reporting the truth here. That will get an answer. Free trade with China is likely over in the way that we've known it from 1990s forward, that is likely over. And what happens on the backside and how much that is triggered by populism, I don't know at this point, but I do sense that it's coming. And that is going to be a big, big moving part that's going to shape our politics in the months and years to come after we get through the coronavirus and right now, we're just seeing the beginning parts of that, where some U.S. senators in particular are looking at ways they can make China pay for what's happening. I think you're going to see that grow significantly as people find out just how much China lied and is the reason for what happened and all the deaths. So that's something to keep in mind as we move forward here. When we get back after the break, we'll talk through the economic ramifications and about the $2 trillion spending bill. And we're back talking about coronavirus and how it impacts the economy and Congress this week. The big news story, 
which already feels like it was a week ago, is that Congress finally passed the $2.2 trillion spending deal on Friday, and that's going to do a lot of things. The first major thing is that it's going to start sending checks out to people, which is a very good start. I'm hoping that is much sooner than it is later. We need to have those going out in the next two weeks because people already experienced the end of March and the 1st of April here without a lot of them having a paycheck here for several weeks. And so they need that money now. But aside from that, that also is going to loosen up the business loans and various bailouts that are going out to some industries like the airlines. We may have even have to come back and add more to that. In fact, I'm almost positive that we will. Specifically, one of the good pieces of news that I learned this week and that I'll throw on the show notes is that the the um, the small business association loans that the government puts out also cover gig workers and sole proprietors. So if you get all of your income through a 1099 working through various gig jobs, or you're a sole proprietor, you can also get access to some of the same payroll loan relief that is being offered to larger companies. I'll post a link to that. They they had an entire chart that talked through it, but it is a very cool thing that people can use if they need more than these checks, and they're trying to replace lost income from their jobs. Mark Cuban was the one who first tweeted about that and was trying to get people to access it. He was specifically pointing to gig workers who might need this more than others, since a lot of these jobs have vanished because they, people can't get work right now. So the big question, apart from all of that, with this bill is, is it enough? And my answer to that would be no, just on a cursory glance. I know we're spending $2.2 trillion, but given what we are looking at, in front of us and what is being asked of the American people, I don't believe this will be enough. Trump expanded this, trying to get people these checks out in the next two weeks. It is more likely that these are going to go out towards the end of the month. And the big thing here is that the CDC guidelines that Trump was talking about have been expanded to the end of April as well. So what we saw in March is going to happen in April, and that means... Since Congress only passed this relief to pay out checks for one month, the people are going to need two months in order to survive now. I thought at the time they needed to cover three months with a provision to come back and revisit this if we needed to do this again in order to get people through this virus period of time. And that's probably what they're going to end up having to do. They're going to have to come back and pass another relief bill in order to do exactly that. The more you ask of people in this situation, the more you ask people to stay home, to not go to work, the more you're going to have to help them out. Right now, the government really wants people to stay home over the next month. That is a lot to ask. When I was originally looking at this, I sort of thought that Trump's timeline of looking at this at around Easter was probably smart here, just because that's about all you could ask. If you're only going to cut one check, that's about all you can ask people to do, because then they have to start going and getting new jobs and heading out, and that's how the virus is going to spread again, obviously. But if your choice is between getting sick or paying rent or getting food, you're going to choose the part where you get a job. You just have to survive, and that's the basic equation here. You can't demand people to stay home if you're not also going to help them out. And that's why I keep hitting this point that this is not a bailout. This is not about socialism. 
all of the playbooks, all of the the way people think about this is thrown out the window because this is a very unique set of circumstances where all the prior books, all the prior things that we've done do not apply. This is about surviving a pandemic and trying to adjust policy in such a way that we can protect both the economy, which you may remember four weeks ago was fine, and also protect public health. The best analogy that I've seen about about this, and I've got it in my column coming out on Monday, is that we are trying to put the economy into a medically induced coma in order to survive this pandemic. By itself, if we were to let this thing just go through and rely on herd immunity, a lot of people would die, and that would cause even more economic distress. You need people alive in order to keep the economy humming along. So you can't afford all of that death to hit. So you have to take action to flatten the curve and also to protect your healthcare system because you also don't want it depleted at the end of a very hard slog against this virus. So we're taking drastic action. But that also means all these old playbooks where you're talking about whether or not business should fail or succeed or whether or not this is about what we need to do to stop a recession or stimulate the economy, worrying about supply and demand. None None of that applies. We're not worried about supply or demand in this case because we want people to stay home. We don't want them going to work and we don't want them going into stores to buy things. This is a very unique Thing that we required right now. So this is why all of the prior debates that people have had from the Great Recession on back, they don't apply. And so when people start talking about, oh, well, you know, people were against bailouts then, why are they okay with it now? And that's because this is not a bailout. These are not bailouts. What, even what we're doing for the airline industry, we are, do not want people to go and fly right now. And if people are not going to go fly, the airlines are not going to make any business. We don't want cruises doing anything. We don't want airlines allowing people to travel. We don't want Greyhound doing that. We don't want people going out to restaurants. There's, long, there's a long list of things we do not want to happen right now. And legally, the, way I, the, best, the other way I've heard this described is that this is like a taking in the Constitution, where if the government wants to take something from you, you have to get just compensation for that. Now, the most common version of this, you know, when the government says, well, we've got to build a road, or we've got to expand the medians, and part of your yard is part of this, we can compensate you for the land that it takes to get this road to go through, we can't just take it from you. We have to offer just compensation for that. The government is doing that here, except they're demanding that people not work or do things for a period of a month, or in this case, two months. If you want the government to do that, that's fine, but you do have to compensate people on the backside in order to keep everything running along. You can't expect people to simply say, okay, well, I won't work, and then not expect any fallout from that. You have to do something. And so all of these old playbooks that politicians rely on do not apply here. And it's frustrating for me to watch this because it's very clear what you have to do. You have to cut people checks to get them to survive. And then if you do that, the economy will rebound quickly. The goal of what you want here is you want a V-shaped recovery. We've had a very sharp decline, but if we beat the virus, we can come back and immediately bounce back and be back where we were or above that on the backside because we are allowed to recover quickly. Now, will this work? I I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We're planning on it. This is this is a very, very 
thin needle we're threading here, you have already lots of job losses where people just flat out lost their jobs. You have other people who have been furloughed, who are out of work. And it's going to take some of these industries a long time to recover. I would think specifically restaurants, cruises, leisure, anything like that, they're going to take a long time to recover after this. But demand, it will rebound. People are going to want to go on cruises. They're going to want to go to restaurants. They're, want to, they're going to want to do all these things. And we need the jobs behind all of these things to rebound as well. So there's going to be a very big sort on the back of this, where people are going to be changing careers, changing jobs. There's going to be a big resort because everything is being tossed up and swirled around. This is like a gigantic blender where everybody's getting moved around. And there's going to be a, a sort where everyone is going to be in a different place on the back of this. Some people are going to try to get back their old jobs and it's not going to happen. So they're going to end up in new industries. Some people are going to use this as a chance to leave their current job because they were looking for a reason to leave before. So there's going to be a shuffle here between jobs and employers, and there's no way around that. But what we need, whatever happens there, we need that sharp recovery on the backside. You don't want to U shaped recovery where there's sort of a gradual buildup. You want a sharp one in the shape of a V that allows this to rebound very quickly and be back where we are on the backside. And that would basically be the economy waking up from its medically induced coma and looking around saying, all right, we survived the pandemic. Let's get back to work. So that's sort of what to expect here. I expect Congress is going to have to come back to the table and at a minimum cut another round of checks to the American public. It is very hard for me to think that they're going to be allowed to sit here and not do anything else. Maybe they will, but I suspect they're going to have to cut another round of checks to the American public to keep them indoors because people are going to say, well, that $1,200 is not enough to get me through two months. I need at least two. And the smart thing would be to do would be just plan for three. That way, in case they decide to expand and cover May 2, it seems like there are some models that want this to go through June 1st. That seems crazy now, but we don't know what things are going to look like at the end of April. I thought towards the end of March we would have a really good idea of where we are, and it looks like right now we're still looking at a peak of around mid-April. And even if that's the peak, you still have to go down on the other side. So there's going to be some delay here, and hopefully it's done by the end of April, but it may not be, depending on how slow the, the peak of this goes down. So look for that, I would say. Look for Congress to have to come back to the table to cut another bill. That probably won't happen here because both the Senate and the House are out right now. But I think you will hear chatter about that happening in the next two weeks, particularly if you don't see these checks go out fast enough. That's really the key part here is making sure that these checks get cut and that people get the compensation that they need, that's going to be the determinative factor of whether or not another round has to go out, and also whether or not we continue these regulations for a period of time after this month is over. So there's a lot up in the air, a lot that's going to change at the end of this, both culturally and economically. This will not be the same country or economy on the backside of this, just due to a series of factors. Things are going to change, and a lot of it's going to be permanent. So this is going to be interesting. This is going to change a lot. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, questions, or feedback. If you've got your own things that you think will change, you can reach out to me and shoot that to me in the contact information of the show notes. 
or you can go to me, hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. I'm usually there, so if you've got thoughts, you can fire them away to me. Look for my next columns to come out on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.